he doesn't remember saying this, but he did. And I remember every word. He said, if I'm asked about that, I will tell them that on September 11th of 2001, when those buildings came down, they came down with every ethnicity, with every religious conviction, and with every sexual orientation inside. We died together as a country on that day, and we will live together as a country. And the room erupted, and I had tears in my eyes. And I thought, that is the political courage that I want to see. And I thought, I've got to be part of helping him. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Bobby Clark, a longtime political operative in Colorado who worked to turn Colorado blue as a founder of Progress Now and was an important part of the movement for gay rights and gay marriage at the Gill Foundation. He has a lot of valuable learnings for other progressive social movements, I think. I really enjoyed talking to Bobby about his path into politics and what he's done over the past decade and a half, including his recent consulting work. You'll want to listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Bobby Clark. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name's Bobby Clark. Uh, I'm currently an independent consultant. I've had a bit of a circuitous path to get here. Once upon a time, I was an attorney, and, and then I ended up working for now Governor Polis in several of his startups. And he actually recruited me into my first political experience. Um, he... Um, got me to help him with a run a 2002 ballot measure in Colorado for election day voter registration, which we lost spectacularly. And then that set my life in a totally different direction. There's some things we learned in that process that, that ultimately led to some things we did together in Colorado. And then I also met Howard Dean in the middle of all that. And I was one of those people who just fell in love and wanted to go help. And having never worked on a political campaign, I found myself in early January of 03 as employee 12 uh, in, in living in Vermont, and I didn't expect that to be happening. I was there from beginning to end, and then I went back to Colorado, and one of Jared's political advisors, Michael Hutner, one of the things we observed after the 2002 election in Colorado is just how much more sophisticated the conservative infrastructure was in Colorado, and uh, in particular, their permanent capacity to communicate and be shaping public attitudes through the media. Um, there's a, an organization in Colorado, the Independence Institute, that, that is sort of always at the task, <laughs> communicating year round. Our observation was that um, 
the infrastructure in Colorado tended to scale up and scale down around campaigns, and we needed to stop that and, and have permanent capacity. The particular thing we focused on was the need to have communicators who were full-time, and so we came up with the idea for Progress Now. We kept talking about that while I was on the Dean campaign, and then when I came back to Colorado, we started working on that, and we launched Progress Now Colorado in January of 05, and then ultimately uh, some national funders thought what we were doing is a good thing in Colorado and helped us begin to expand that Progress Now affiliates to other states. And we grew a network. I think we were at 15 states, I believe, by 2010. In 2010, uh, one of our largest funders was the Gill Foundation, based in Colorado, focused nationally on LGBTQ equality, but in Colorado focused progressively. And uh, the Gill Foundation hired me to be vice president of communications. Uh, and ultimately, I was vice president of communications and programs. And I, I was there from 2010 to 2016 in, uh, I think, some really exciting time uh, for the marriage movement. Gill Foundation is, I think, to date, um, the largest funder ever in LGBTQ equality work in the country. Tim's an incredibly generous person. And that was just a transformative experience for me to be part of the marriage movement and and get to be around so many incredibly smart people. In 2016, I decided um, I really felt like you know marriage. We we had one marriage. We were beginning to engage in uh, what we saw as the next big, longer term fight for equality around non discrimination protections. We had made some foundational investments in that work. And I really wanted to get back to more multi-issue work. And I really thought it was important to take some of what we had learned on marriage around communications, around messaging and framing and narrative change and go work on other issues. And I fortunately, as a consultant, have been able to do that on, done a lot of work on immigration. I've done work on attitudes about health, taxes, a lot of fun work. So I really worked intensively uh, since 2016 on uh, some sort of large-scale messaging and narrative work on different issues. Well, seems like a really interesting and good career to me and put you right in the middle of a lot of important stuff. I want to just ask you some questions about it. You said you worked for Jared Polis, and even though he's made it to governor, and was actually the congressman from the district which I grew up in and lives on the high floor of the building that my dad lives in. I don't think everybody knows him. How did you get connected with him originally and worked with him on some of his enterprises? And who is he? So I had been uh, practicing law in uh, at an office in Boulder. Gosh, this would have been 97, I think. And you know, the internet was just beginning to happen. And my law partner and I were doing some work for um, a group of, uh, of entrepreneurs who were creating a new company. And, and we decided that we wanted to go be part of that. And so we, um, we joined that effort, helped launch a new company in Boulder. What company was that? It was an internet provider named PowerWorks. One of the many uh, uh, startup efforts that that ultimately didn't go anywhere. But um, the just through someone I knew at PowerWorks, one of our lead technologists knew Jared through met Jared in Boulder and had a chance to go work uh, with a startup um, that was going to be in that was based actually in San Francisco and uh, a, a spinoff of BlueMountain.com and. 
he recruited me, the, the technologist I knew recruited me to come join them and be part of that core team. So I commuted back and forth to San Francisco for about 18 months. And, and uh, that was my connection to Jared. My experience of Jared is he's very often, uh, and perhaps most of the time, uh, the smartest person in the room. He, he is just incredibly, incredibly smart. Um, he's very quick. Uh, you know, he's able to understand things quickly and, and make very, it's very decisive and, and makes bold, smart choices. There was no indication to me at the time that he had political aspirations. That was a surprise to learn later. Uh, and, um, but not surprisingly, he, he tackled that like he does everything and mastered it, I think, very quickly. And in his entrepreneurial career, made a zillion dollars. Very smart choices. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot that people don't even know about. He had his first big success while he was still a college student. I think he built and sold the company while he was at Princeton. Um, and uh, long before the pretty epic success of selling BlueMountain.com to to Excite. Uh, and then he had several several spinoffs from BlueMountain.com before the Excite deal. And some of them kept going, including ProFlowers.com. That was a also a massive success. So pretty good track, track record of being a businessman. Yeah. And were you involved in any of those efforts to the point that you got stock or just like a lawyerly advisor? Prior to law school, I had, had really had, had more of a political focus as an undergrad and including political communications and, and some marketing. So I found myself in, in a position of product marketing. So I, I was helping both develop products and position products for the market. I think there's something in politics where there are certain campaigns or efforts, which if you become part of them, it's sort of legendary. And one of those is the Dean campaign, right? In 2003, maybe you could say why, what was it about that campaign that it spawned so much innovation. It spawned so much passion. It came short so spectacularly. Governor Dean, I've interviewed him actually on the show. There's something very normal about the guy for a politician. And but what what was your experience there? And, and explain that. So I, I was working on the ballot measure uh, for uh, for Jared in in, uh, in the fall of 2002. And Howard Dean, who I knew a little bit about, uh, was coming to speak at the Democratic Party offices, which were happened to be you know two doors down, I think. And I went to hear him. And and for me, I, as a gay man, the thing that you know obviously I was very aware of at the time was the first governor to sign into law relationship equality, uh, civil unions in Vermont, and and so I wanted to hear him. And he, I remember it was late in the in his conversation with us, somebody asked him a question. They said, so you're the first, you, you signed civil unions into law. Um, that's one thing in Vermont, but like, how's that going to play in Iowa uh, in a more culturally conservative place? And, and he said, uh, he doesn't remember saying this, but he did. And I remember every word he said, if I'm asked about that, I will tell them that on September 11th of 2001, when those buildings came down, they came down with every ethnicity, with every religious conviction, and with every sexual orientation inside. We died together as a country on that day, and we will live together as a country. And the room erupted, and and I had tears in my eyes, and I thought that is the political courage that I want to see, and and I thought I've got to be part of of 
helping him. So I went back and, and told someone I was working with in the ballot measure, like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I want to help this guy. Next time he comes to Colorado, I want to help him. He said, well, I happen to know the person who is going to, uh, who, who arranged this visit, let's go have lunch with them. So we went to have lunch with Rick Ritter, uh, a, a legendary political consultant from Colorado who's worked on a lot of presidential campaigns and, and has a daughter now who is following his footsteps and working on a lot of presidential campaigns. I'm having lunch with Rick and Rick says, well, your, your timing is kind of interesting because I just learned this morning that I'm going to be the campaign manager. And so then I immediately turned into sales mode and I said, like, look, I've never worked on a campaign, but I've worked on Internet startups. I know what it's like to walk into an empty building and do whatever it takes to get something going. If, you, if I have to string cable, I will string cable. I will do whatever it takes. And he said that they needed staff. Um, he was restricted at the time. I think Howard wanted to only hire fundraisers early. And so Rick managed to convince Howard that I was a fundraiser. And uh, and I was hired to work under Stephanie Shriok, who was the uh, head of development. And so my position was in the development team, even though I'd never done any development on on a campaign. And Stephanie's just one of those people who went on to extraordinary things in politics. Incredible yeah. leader. My my passion was that I really wanted to. I, I'd had all this experience uh, with internet startups, and I believed that we could do better in engaging people online. Um, so I wanted to be part of that. Rick worked to get me a shot to make a pitch to, to, to Governor Dean that, that I could be helpful. We had a website at the time that just, you know, a few volunteers had put together and it was, it was a pretty rough site and it was, there were a lot of things broken about it and we had no money. So I managed to convince a few friends back in Boulder to help me build a, a website to to try to pitch to Governor Dean. We had no pictures. There were no images available of the governor and his family because they're, they were notoriously very private people. He was already being compared to Governor Bartlett. So we, we culled from uh, West Wing websites, pictures of the Bartlett family and used them as, uh, as the deans and created a site that we pitched to the, the governor and, and he gave me the go ahead and we were able to get started. And so we started building the basics of what became the internet team. And then people sort of gravitated. Zephyr Teachout was was actually doing um, field work, I think, at the time and not loving that. And she really wanted to do internet work. So she became part of the internet team. We recruited Nico Mele. Um, he's one of those people who just through a friend of a friend became connected to the campaign and, and Nico came in and we started just piecing it together. And I remember those first few months, like we had no pattern to follow. We were literally just making it up. And Joe Trippi came in and, and basically gave us permission to just experiment. And so our, you know, our task was to go find the energy, connect with the energy and do whatever we could to start building energy online uh, and getting people to respond to the campaign. We also were fortunate, Zach Exley, who I think is a brilliant organizer, took a leave from Move On and and, and came up and, and basically took us all through a boot camp of um, what he knew of, of how to organize online. And, and by the end of June, we had dramatically <laughs> shifted perceptions of the campaign and we were off and running. I have this weird experience with this in that I've interviewed Rick Ritter about it. I interviewed Joe Trippi about it. I interviewed Nico Mealy about it. You know, 
And so I've had all of these different perspectives. Now yours is kind of fitting in alongside theirs and Ben Self and, and different people that came in along the way. The roast bars. Roast bars I've never, I haven't had on yet, but I ought to have if he would just do it. There was something about that moment, both in the time in technology, right? Like it's still in politics super early for the internet. The commercial world had gone past the world of politics. I was building campaign software. We provided the Dean campaign our first uh, online version. We'd been in client server land and it was real rickety and sort of a beta thing. And, and uh, they tolerated it and built lots of things around it. And then that campaign also spawned Blue State Digital out of some of the tech people and Echo Ditto out of Nico's group and many consultancies, you know. So even though it was a small campaign and even though by the scale of internet campaigns that followed it, like, you know, Obama, it was tiny. It still was a revolution, right? It really was. And we, you know, like, again, there was no, there was no pattern to follow. We knew, I mean, you know, this was a governor who really wasn't even that well known in neighboring New Hampshire. He was not a national name. And so, um, you know, those involved in the campaign were just sort of scratching and clawing and trying to learn with everything we could do how to begin to carve out space and, and get attention and start building support. I remember, so Zach Exley had proposed the idea uh, I think it was Zach who proposed it, that we needed to think about doing things like petitions, which uh, Move On had had great success with, but that wasn't a thing that campaigns did. And I remember being in a meeting, I think it was uh, Dave Kochbeck, me, uh, Zephyr Teachout, a handful of us thinking about the idea of doing petitions. I go back to my desk to check my email. There's an email coming out, I think it was from HRC, um, talking about Rick Santorum's famous man on dog comments. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. He's notorious in that area. He made a disgusting anti-gay comment. And so um, I, I walked back in. I said, I think we have we have our first petition. Um, and and so we everybody liked it. We drafted a petition. We sent it out and we doubled our database practically overnight. I'm not sure that uh, everyone got a chance to approve it. <laughs> I think we just we just moved and. And it worked and, and people responded. And so, in fact, my now husband, his first interaction with the Dean campaign was to sign that petition. We didn't know each other at the time. He was uh, living in Colorado. We just learned that we had to do things differently. We couldn't follow a traditional path and get where we needed to go. And all of these brilliant people, all that they learned, I remember having a conversation um, with the, the guys who became the Blue State Digital team at the end of the campaign, campaign was clearly kind of winding down and we were having this conversation. You know, if we, knowing what we know now, what tools do we wish we had at the beginning? And, and so we had lots of conversation around that. And then I left, the campaign ends. I go back to Colorado. Our donors who supported us to start Progress Now actually gave us a pretty clear imperative that they wanted us to, to build a, a website for Progress Now that would engage the grassroots. So I went back to uh, my friends at Blue State who were just getting started and, and, and decided to hire them. We worked through a requirements process of what a powerful website would look like for engaging the grassroots with Progress Now. What we ended up creating was a suite of tools that would be owned by Blue State Digital that we uh, were able to um, 
have as a service. And when Joe Rosebars um, then subsequently was hired by the Obama campaign to do something similar, within a matter of days, they were able to roll out My Barack Obama, which was essentially almost exactly everything that, had, that they had already created in that project to create a, a website for Progress Now in Colorado. I think they'd also done stuff like that for the DNC and they'd picked up a lot of big players in the, in the democratic party along the way. That must've been a nice feeling to be in the middle of that tech revolution in politics. You know, it, it, it was a lot of those people are still some of my dearest friends to this day. I think they're, they're brilliant people who have gone on to do incredible things. Stephanie Shreya, uh, we said earlier is a great example of that. The, the whole blue state team, they've changed the world in a lot of ways. Uh, and then, and then I was honestly fortunate enough to come back to Colorado at a time when 2004 and five, when the donors who the Republicans later called the four horsemen uh, were coming together to begin investing in independent expenditures and create progressive infrastructure. So I got to be um, just out of sheer luck. I got to be part of the ground floor of the progressive buildup in Colorado. Let's talk about that. I only heard from afar that Colorado was changing politically in a way that very few states were. A state that had been difficult for Democrats up and down for a while. It had created a progressive infrastructure that made a difference. And that uh, was part of something that people are still working on in many states to try to have a permanent system of all of the different pieces that you need to run politics effectively and have a progressive movement that coordinates well and communicates well and organizes well and all of that. Tell me about how that came together in Colorado. Who who was part of that and what did they do? The conversation has to start with the funders who came together and had a willingness to be like remarkably generous to invest. And they invested in very, very serious ways and 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 very thoughtful ways. Like there was a whole effort and a whole group of people who who did very thorough analysis to think about like what are the capacities that need to exist in order for us to be successful on the left? Things like permanent communications capacity, and that that was progress now, the ability to recruit and train candidates, um, um, the table structures to uh, help organize organizations come together and be more powerful than the sum of the parts. And so, like, you know, we were an early state to develop a C3 roundtable. We were an early America Vote state. They didn't last forever, but we had, we were the only state that had our own version of media matters. There was a, uh, some independent publications, uh, newspaper publications that came into being about that time. And Colorado was one of the states that had one of those. And we were also lucky. There was an amazing donor who had a facility, had a building, and he had a vision for having like lots of progressive organizations in that building so that through sheer proximity, we could become uh, build relationships, become more collaborative. That was called the Alliance Center. And so just a, a lot of things fell right. And our role at Progress Now was to be the full-time communicators. We were multi-issue. We had, uh, so we were able to work with anyone. So the environmental groups or the choice groups or anyone else, we could be sort of an adjunct of their efforts and help them. We were probably the only group squarely focused on online engagement. And we 
uh, worked like hell to build a massive email list. And we went, I think we got to 300,000 people in about a year, starting from just about scratch. And so we had the ability to mobilize people online. And we worked, honestly, a lot of it was shoe leather and just hard work. We had people who worked incredibly, incredibly hard um, to in, in a nonstop way to champion our issues and also be able to communicate about our opponents in ways that drew clear contrast and made the choices clearer for voters about who was on their side. When I've asked people who ran the Progress Now version in other state or other parts of the infrastructure in many states, I've asked them a question like, how do the resources compare on the right and on the left in your state? And it's very few states uh, that are contested where they say that our side came anywhere close to what the Republicans had. Did this end up leveling things? Did you move ahead? Were you still behind, but just the shoe leather made the difference? How did it end up in terms of what you had in organizations? I don't know the answer to that I, I, off the top of my head to know like what, what was being spent. I, I think that we were, at the very least, we were very competitive and we invested, I would argue that we invested in infrastructure in a much more intensive way. Like Republicans for a lot of years stuck with their old playbook of having, you know, uh, John Caldera and the Independence Institute carry a lot of load. And they were, I think, wholly insufficient to match what we were doing. We had an enviable amount of resources in Colorado. I think that's changing around the country. I think the work to sort of rally and mobilize progressive donors is really impressive. And a lot of states have done an incredible job of that. Even with all that work, you don't win them all. I mean, we did get like Cory Gardner for a senator. It's hard to control all of the political wins that blow. But like, what were some of the highs and lows over the time from Progress Now starting forward? There were a lot more highs than lows starting in 2006. And I think that was that was uh, Schaefer and Udall, I believe. We just worked really hard to part of our job was to be laser focused on the other side and 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 messaging about the other side in a sort of persistent drumbeat of our media to ultimately help voters decide that they're not people who share their values, not people who share their priorities, and, and they don't want to select them. And so like before YouTube, we were creating online videos to, to uh, make fun of, to, uh, to frame opponents. We would do stunts, anything to get attention, drive a narrative. And so like I remember Bob Beaupre, when he was running for governor, he was trying to, you know, show how folksy he was. Uh, and he talked about being an old dairy farmer, but in truth, his family sold the dairy farm when he was a child and they became real estate developers. And several of us dressed up in a cow uniform and we filmed ourselves on the golf course at the center of what once upon a time years ago was a, was a family farm and just made fun of the idea that he's not a family farmer. He's a very wealthy, uh, real estate developer and he has been for a long time. Sometimes I think people looked at things we did at Progress Now and thought they were very stunt-like, but um, I think, you know, ultimately we were, we were pretty effective in driving narratives. And sometimes you've got to do what you got to do to get, to get attention from the press. And In that straight electoral game, if you were advising other people at like Progress Now equivalents or working on communicating in politics, 
what would you tell them works and doesn't work? If I had one recommendation for other states, um, I would say you have to have a team of people. The conservative side of things, they focus so much time and energy trying to brand us. Um, we don't focus nearly enough time and attention trying to draw the contrast with them and brand them. I think for some people in our movement, it maybe it's just distasteful to be to take off the gloves. But I, I think that was as was a key to me in Colorado is that we were we fought for it. It was important. Winning was important. Uh, we had to win. We could not accept losing, and that meant we needed to go hard at our opponents. and And I think that you know by by virtue of the fact that there were. Uh, people going hard after opponents, often the, the candidates on our side were able to, you know, focus more cleanly on their proactive, positive vision for Coloradans and how their vision resonated. So you made that transition out of progress now to Gill. Why? So in 2000, you know, we, we expanded to a number of states as progress now uh, organizations or multi-issue organizations. Of course, we were able to communicate some about the the uh, unfolding campaign around around marriage equality, but uh, but I certainly wasn't uh, immersed in it. Gill Foundation was a big funder of ours. Well, Gill Foundation and Gill Action Fund. Tim also had a, a C four. The opportunity came up. I was very close to the the then vice president for communications, and I just couldn't pass it up. The chance to I was already working very closely with with many people over there, and the opportunity to go like jump into the marriage fight and be part of it was too much to pass up. I needed to be part of that. That was June of 2010, and I uh, fortuitously was just coming into the movement at a very pivotal time. We had lost and lost and lost. We lost again in 2008 in California. And we were taking a step back to try to figure out, clearly we're not doing something right. <laughs> uh, so how do we figure this out? And there were, um, so, I, you know, I was able to come in and right at the time that we were deeply involved in trying to figure out what are we doing wrong and how can we be better? Um, so I got to be kind of on the ground floor of the second wave of marriage when we started to be on the upswing. People who are immersed in current politics don't realize how much of a long shot it looked like back then, not just the losing, but the conventional wisdom among our leaders in the Democratic Party that that the country wasn't ready, that it was a, a losing political issue, that if you took a pro-marriage equality stand, it would hurt you. Very similar to, to the kind of the being burnt by the gun issue after 94 but maybe worse, right? Uh, a kind of more fundamental, even than that. Now seems like it was inevitable in a certain way, right? The way that uh, everything from the Daily Show and Hollywood and and kind of the vast cultural apparatus that got mobilized changed things. But I'm sure that it was, you know, a lot of strategy and tactics and careful choices about how to present yourself that were part of that. And I've heard that from other people to some extent. What was your version? I will say this is my version. Um, others might have slightly different perspectives, but but I did have a pretty up-close seat. Uh, we were, as I said, Gill Foundation, I, I think historically is the largest funder of, of LGBT equality work. 
And we were deeply invested in the marriage fight, both with the foundation and in Tim's work with Guild Action Fund. I think there are a few keys about that that I think are absolutely 100% directly applicable to almost any other issue. One of the things I was experiencing when I when I first came into that was it's not like we didn't like we weren't communicating in what we thought were smart research based ways. We were just I, I think we were too narrow in our focus on research that was leading us to some bad conclusions. And so like we had there was lots of polling on this. The referendum I the the uh, uh, civil union measure in Colorado in 2006 I believe was was an example of this that. You know, marriage was not popular at the time. The idea of marriage, we were in the 30s. And I got to be honest, it, you know, to be in the LGBT movement, working on an issue that is far from having majority support, that is seen as a political li- a liability for people on the left, that's a hard place to be in. So I fully appreciate, I understand what it's like for folks working on immigration that I've now had a chance to work on too. Uh, and other issues, like it, it, it's really, really hard. Who you are is is seen as problematic to people. That is hard, um, and and it was hard, you know, at that time that even that like all of our if Democrats had even all been with us, like we would have been in a much better place. So we weren't even like had solid support within, within the Democratic Party. Uh, from my observation, one of the things we learned right about that time, two thousand nine, ten, uh, is that. Uh, you know, we so we could ask a question in a poll, do you support marriage? And we'd get a really low number. But we could ask, do you think someone should be denied hospital visitation uh, because they're not married? 90% of people would say, of course not. So the conclusion that, that we were making was that we need to talk about this in those terms as these rights that are very popular. And Prop 8, that was a big part of the messaging of Prop 8, that this is, this is about, um, you know, not denying people basic rights. Um, the, what we, my read of this is what, what was happening is we were talking about marriage and unfamiliar terms to people. Straight people don't grow up thinking about getting married because they want hospital visitation. They think about marriage as, uh, you know, I fall, I want to fall in love with somebody and I want to make a lifetime commitment. All that other stuff is just, you know, ancillary. Our opponents were saying that if we were allowed into the institution of marriage, we would fundamentally change it. So by it, by talking about our relationships in in ways that were unfamiliar to people, we were reinforcing this idea that we wanted something different and that we might change the institution for part of it. Another challenge we had at the time is that people had very the people who experienced conflict around marriage who could be with us but but weren't thought about same sex couples in unhelpful ways. They had very um, limited and often unhelpful associations that came to mind when they thought of who gay people were like, you know, we're, we're lonely, we're isolated, we're rejected by our families, we're, you know, outcasts of society. And that may be true for some people's experience. It's certainly not universally true. (laughs) You know, many of us, like we have families who love us and we shifted, we started doing a lot more qualitative. We started listening to people more carefully and we learned those things. And we learned pretty quickly that if we will talk about marriage in, in, in terms of these shared values of love and commitment, it's much more, people are much more likely to, to uh, receive us and accept the idea that we really are the same and we want the same thing. We also learned that if we share stories of us as couples within the context of our, um, of loving, supportive families and communities and coworkers and church families, 
that we help people also fundamentally shift the idea of who we're even talking about. So people could feel a closer sense of identity with us. And so that, that took us in a whole different direction, away from a rights and justice framework, which is kind of our knee-jerk reaction on the left, is that we want people to lean into justice, which is a value we feel very strongly about, and to be magnanimous towards some other population with whom it may be difficult to feel identity. But if we shift and we focus more on creating shared identity and establishing shared values and, and also help people understand more broadly how it impacts them, uh, uh, we can be more successful. And that, I think, that fundamental shift in framing, especially around the shared values of love and commitment, um, was transformational. It took us in a whole different direction that ultimately led to winning. Do you know Dave Fleischer at Leadership Lab? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I talked to him about this from a different angle, and he he kind of from the notion of deep canvassing. And he, t- he was very interesting and persuasive about, like, First of all, they did a lot of experimentation going door to door and listening after that big loss in California and and then trying to figure out what worked and then learning that telling your own story is what allowed them to make connections and actually showed people changing at the door when you had long conversations with them. It seems like across the country, people were working so hard at reframing that and trying to make it work in a pragmatic way. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of Dave's work and, and have at Gill Foundation, we actually funded um, the first deep canvas uh, focused on uh, trying to reduce anti-trans bias. And, and in my consulting work, I've been part, uh, I was part of the first ever deep canvas on immigration. I agree. I think that the story sharing um, does help create human connection. But one fundamental piece of deep canvas also, and I've talked to a lot of deep canvassers to get their perspective about like, why did, why did this work for you? And one woman in uh, an immigration canvas um, outside of Nashville shared what I thought was very, it was very visual. It helped me really think about this. She said that she thought one of the fundamental parts of it was that people simply were heard and that being heard allowed them to calm down. We're all in such a triggered state all the time. Our amygdalas are constantly firing. Our opponents know that that's the key to success. Make people afraid. Trigger amygdalas. <laughs> and then we've got to contend with these people in triggered state and try to get them in a calmer place to think rationally. Um, the deep canvas, this woman said, I, I asked her, what was the secret? And she said, you know, I, to me, it was the act of listening. And she said, I could tell you a few minutes into the conversation, when somebody uncrosses their arms and they relax their shoulder and their face relaxes, now we're having a human connection. Now I can actually, uh, um, I can actually even rationalize with you. I can talk about facts. I can talk about shared values in a way. And you're listening to me, and I have a chance to move you. I think that has a direct um, takeaway for messaging work too, because I think we 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 don't value enough on the left the importance of soothing people and getting them into a place where on immigration, for example, it, it's our, you know, our opponents, their lead strategy is just to make people constantly afraid. And when people are afraid, it's really hard to work with that. But there are clear ways that we've learned on immigration that we can reduce that anxiety and calm people. And one of the ways we can calm people is by showing how undocumented people are just like us. They have families, they work, they pay taxes, they're members of our church families. And that sense of familiarity is an inherently calming thing. That's a 
something proven in social psychology is that familiarity is an inherently calming thing. And so like there are ways that we on the left can do a better job across issues of getting people into the right emotional state so that they can hear us better and, and be more persuaded. If there was ever a human amygdala triggerer, it was Trump. <laughs> I mean, very, very blatant, continual assault on our senses. His rise and time in power and his continued flamethrowing has just made that whole environment so damn difficult in this country. It's hard to know uh, how that'll work out in the long run. It could be really dreadful. It's still kind of in, in the balance, I think. It seems like this is the battlefield right now between getting people scared and trying to soothe them, as you've put it. How can we win when it's so easy to frighten people? I, you know, I, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work for one. I think it is. It means we have to do our I, I think they're so, so So, like one of the things that I a few things from, from marriage that I think are directly relevant to other issues. One is that we can't afford to make assumptions about anybody. Uh, too often we scale our research in ways that are too limited in terms of our geographic and ethnographic scope. We make dangerous assumptions about who's with us and who isn't. And we can't afford to do that. This last election showed that Latinos have complicated and conflicting feelings about things. And they may not be as motivated by some things as we think. And we need to understand them and invest in communicating with them. And I think we need to do a lot more qualitative work than we do. David Winkler and I, uh, who you've interviewed, we talk a lot about this. Yes, well, there's so much more we can do better with polling, but we also have to supplement polling. Polling requires us to inherently create a lot of hypotheses that we're testing. It's harder to be quite as open-ended with polling. And we need to do a lot more qualitative to simply listen to people and try to understand where they're coming from. And in the course of doing that on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, um, we need to understand, like, what are the emotional triggers that are challenging for us? What are ways that we can contend with those and to dampen those? Where are the opportunities of, of helpful concerns that people have that we can elevate? I think on any given issue, it's much more complicated than we tend to want to make it. There's no single magic words. There's a series of things that we have to do that are part of a broader narrative. And we just have to spend the time and energy and resources to figure that out. And one of the ways we figure that out, another thought about a key to marriage is right about that time we were trying to figure out how to be better. This woman, Thalia Zapatos, who's a brilliant organizer, worked for Freedom to Marry. She pulled together a group called the Marriage Research Consortium. And basically the expectation was anybody who's doing any research on marriage, you better be on the call. And we're all going to share. Everything gets shared with everybody. Uh, we're going to critique each other's work. Even as you're developing your instruments, we're going to critique each other's work. And we stopped treating research like it was, you know, some precious resource that we had to hold close to the vest and more as a community resource that we all needed to share so we could learn together. And, that, and I see that on issue after issue after issue. We progressives, it's ridiculous how much we hold our research uh, close to the vest. The work that Mike Potter has been doing, um, th there's a lot of good work that's happening to facilitate greater sharing, and we've got to be even better uh, because it, it, we need all of our best thinking to, to be able to figure these things out. A lot of times it seems like it's young people 
who are really dissatisfied with the status quo that lead change movements. And maybe even the the most, the angriest or the most uh, energetic. And there's this difficulty in communicating in a way that is effective versus based on rights. Right now, like on race, on climate, on immigration, on criminal justice reform, there's so much to be angry about in a justified way. But in some of those areas, some of the things that we've done on the left have come back and not been successful in in the real world of politics, at least so far. What would you say to some of those most passionate advocates about how, I don't know, to take the lessons of marriage or or other lessons that you have in politics to go for what what will in the long run make change in the society? Maybe a few examples of that. So one of the things that was true in marriage before we made the pivot um, is that, you know, if you are, when you are an, an oppressed minority being disenfranchised in some way, and you have a group of people who hate you, who are coming after you, like, like we experienced on marriage, the James Dobsons of the world and the National Organization for Marriage, it is completely understandable for LGBT advocates to feel a lot of emotion around that, to be angry about that, and to want to call that out. And one of the things we had to learn on marriage is that was a critically important mistake that we needed to stop doing. Because when we were calling out the bigotry of these haters, uh, as many called them, we were suggesting to people who felt conflict around marriage, who weren't there yet, that opposition by definition meant being a hater or being a bigot. That's how people would interpret it. So we had to become super disciplined about not doing that. We needed to create the emotional space for people who weren't with us to be able to wrestle with their inner conflict and give them the tools to resolve that in our favor and throwing vitriol and and justifiable anger into the public dialogue did not help. I don't know that there's a perfect equivalent on every other issue, but I think it's an important question to ask. When we communicate in ways that feel good to us and feel like we're calling out an injustice, there may be some people in the in the population may hear that in ways that we that we don't intend and it may actually inhibit our ability to reaching people who might otherwise be available to us. I can feel that being received, that wisdom being received by college kids who are embedded in a kind of a call-out culture around all kinds of progressive virtues, right? Or calling out things that are bad. I can see them being very resistant to that message, to feeling like there's virtue in what they're doing, that it's making it very hard to do bad things out there. And that's good, right? What's that line? How do you think about how do we get progressive culture right so that we progress as a society and not scare the other side so much that they beat us? I, you know, I, I, I think. I felt like I asked that question in the most inarticulate I think possible I get it. way, but I, I, maybe it came across. I think I get it. So I, I guess one thing I would say is I'm not sure that that um, that contending uh, on uh, on these topics on on Twitter or in other public forums um, 
are the way <laughs> to have the conversation. I th- what, what I see happening right now on the left is that we're dividing, I think, unhelpfully in, in camps around particular theories of how we communicate. And we are also people with amygdalas. Like we trigger each other and then we stop listening to each other because we're in an emotional state and we react emotionally. And so I think we need more space in the quiet of, of, you know, of rooms on Zoom calls with each other, having a human to human conversation to, to talk about the things that we uh, feel conflict about. My experience is there is often a path forward. Like sometimes... There are people on the left, like I, I've seen it in the immigration space. There have been lots of these conversations over the last few years where there are some on the left who say, like, that thing you're suggesting is really bad and it hurts us in these ways longer term. And then people who are more focused on trying to find ways to more broadly appeal saying like, yeah, but this is really important and we need to know this thing about people. And and if we actually have a rational conversation and we think through it, there is a path forward. There is a way for us to communicate in a way that doesn't feel as though it is an abandonment of progressive values. And it's also more resonant more broadly. And so I, I just think it's a false choice. Even in the you know this question of mobilization versus persuasion, I think we almost always have persuasion to work, even with people we think are with us. Um, and the work that we do to persuade can be very mobilizing as well. My hope is that we on the left can avoid to the greatest extent possible falling into false choices, and then we can give each other a little grace that we all ultimately want to get to a place where we're advancing all the things we care about. We may have different perspectives about the most effective way to get there. Fighting about it on Twitter isn't going to, we're just going to keep triggering each other. But if we pick up the phone and call somebody and say, like, I'd really like to talk to you about this. I have concerns about it. Or for the funders out there, create more space for advocates, researchers, others to be able to have these conversations longer term so that we can work together to figure things out because we're smart people. We can do it. We ultimately want to get to the same place. I think we're getting in our own way a little more often than we need to. I feel like this is a really important, really fruitful conversation. I hate to bring it to an end. I feel like we could discuss communication for a long time, but I realize it's the end of the week and you've had a full day of meetings. So I just wondered if there's a question that I failed to ask that I should have. One parting thought. Um, One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life is Evan Wolfson, who conceived of you know, Evan, uh, some of the backstory on marriage that people may not know is that Evan, as a law student at Harvard, in the 80s actually wrote his third year paper on uh, marriage uh, at a time when, you know, this was in the middle of the AIDS crisis in the, in the 80s. We were under attack. Anita Bryant had just happened, you know, in the late 70s. That, uh, and, and Evan had the foresight to think about, uh, about social change differently. And so he wrote his third year paper on marriage. And then when, you know, when on on in November of 2004, when 11 states passed bans and and everybody in the world thought that gay people were the reason why Democrats lost that election, how the movement responded to that, Evan was part of this, was to create a vision for how we win. Within a few months, they had they articulated that vision essentially as a public education campaign. It was 
if we if we win a resilient, strong majority, we will win. Elected leaders will come with us. The court will come with us because they won't feel like they're too far out. Our fundamental posture on marriage was that we had a public persuasion challenge. Everything else was layered at the political work, the litigation, everything else was built on that as the base. And I think too often we on the left think that our task is to push Democrats to be bolder. And we actually expect Democratic elected officials to be the people who are actually evangelizing our issue and moving the public. And that just doesn't work. Politics is not the right place, I think, to ultimately change for social movement. I think my belief and my and certainly my observation for marriage is that the social movement work happened outside of the campaigns and the campaigns benefited from it. You mentioned earlier that, you know, there was a period of time that marriage equality was a very toxic issue issue for Democratic candidates for a period of time. It became not a toxic issue. It also became a winning issue, but only because there was a movement that was laser focused on the public, on moving the public, on doing all the things we need to do to have a strong, resilient majority. My question for advocates is, if you think your primary audience is Democratic officials and not the public, you should question that. And uh, it's not that we shouldn't be communicated to public officials, but if we're building support around issues, our primary audience, I would argue, is always the public and probably a broader range of the public than we believe, including people that we think might be on our side. And if right now the stakes are our very democracy itself on some fronts, it feels maybe that public education is the way that you combat the sort of Trumpist message. Is that right? I mean, I think public education is the, it's just, it has to be a fundamental advocacy, direct advocacy to the public, um, working our tails off to communicate persuasively, consistently, repetitively. I don't know how we change the country on the critical issues we need to change the country on if, if we're not dedicated to that task. It may mean shifting resources differently. It may mean staffing differently in our organizations, but we, I mean, freedom to marry. The the other piece of this is we didn't just learn to be more resonant, but Evan Wolfson built a, a juggernaut of a, of an effort with freedom to marry. He had a, a big team of, of digital people. He had a big team of communicators and political people. And he behaved as if a, like, like a campaign that worked with the entire movement to up our game in communications and to become prolific storytellers. I asked Evan once what's key advice he would give to people working on other issues like immigration. He said, you can't focus enough on storytelling. We need to become epic storytellers. We have to lift up the people to have a people-centered movement. We need to have a people-centered movement and be communicating about people nonstop. Wow. You're a great guest. (laughs) I'm really, uh, appreciative of your time and your thoughts about this. Is there anything else you want to say? That's it. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, It's good to see you. It's been a long time. Good to see you too. That was Bobby Clark. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.